Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Soundwars Collection interview series. This is Michael Coleman and today we're talking with Ben Minto who is a sound designer and audio director at EA Dice. Now EA Dice is a studio based in Stockholm, Sweden and they've released some awesome, awesome titles. Anything from uh, Battlefield 1943 and Mirror's Edge and now they're releasing Star Wars Battlefront which is a very exciting thing for a sound person to be working on a Star Wars title. If you have any idea of how much work goes into each of these game titles, it's mind-boggling. It's just insane of how much audio is being recorded, how much audio is implemented into the final game, and it's creating these really immersive experiences that before the be- you know the beeps and bloops of yesterday are no longer. The bar is so high, and I think Ben and his team have done a fantastic job, and I really enjoy these games because it puts you right in the middle, puts you in the trenches, storming the beaches of Normandy, experiences that are so fun to be part of and, and experience as a gamer, and I just had a blast talking with Ben, so I hope you enjoy this talk. We met for, at GDC many years ago. Yes. 2010, I believe yeah. it was, yeah. Or, or 11? Yeah, one of the two. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it was sure. One. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thanks for making the time, obviously. And um, what title are you working on right now? Um, I'm working on a Star Wars Battlefront at the moment, which oh, is nice. really nice because um, after they closed down LucasArts, the Star Wars IP came over to EA. Yeah. And inside Dice, obviously, we make Battlefield, and Battlefront originally was sort of a. Uh, a clone or a copy or something of Battlefield, but inside the Star Wars universe. So it's really strange that we were like, wow, can we maybe make a new Battlefront? That'd be great. And um, it was sort of discussed internally. went, okay, you asked for it, here it is. And we're like, oh, brilliant. <laughs> so no pressure at all. How long you, How long has that title been uh, on your plate? Um, I don't think we're saying exactly, but um, the IP, I believe, came in about March or April last year. Okay. And we announced in May, I believed it was, at E3 last year that we were working on the title. Oh, nice. Um, but there's, there's quite a few titles in development at the same time at DICE. You know, so you move between them all the time. We finished Battlefield 4, there's a, a Mirror's Edge title, there's a Star Wars title, so, you know. Uh, I mean, as audio director, how much of individual titles do you get to dig into? Are you meant to spread across all the titles that are active or focus? Uh, I think it's a bit different at DICE than it is in other games companies in terms of um, where I used to work in the UK and I know from American places, it's quite pyramid structured. So you'd have a, an audio director for the studio that is responsible for all the titles. Um, the nice thing at DICE is we swap around roles quite a lot. So sometimes you get to be the audio director, which means you do all the paperwork and stuff yeah. like that. And then the next time you're just like a sound designer, so you can just be like, you know, six months doing ambiences and explosions, which is great. It, it I, I think, you know, most sound people that I work with don't really enjoy the paperwork side of things, you know, and the managerial stuff. It's got to be done for the project to be successful. But, you know, at the end of the day, we all want to get our hands dirty, you know, making sounds, noises, and going out recording, so. Yeah, so let's go back a little bit. Hmm. Before you were an audio director, what was that thread for you to get involved into sound? Because what were your initial thoughts when you maybe even were in school of what you were wanting to do? I didn't, my background is sort of a a maths and physics background. and I'd traveled around a lot um, when I was growing up, moving from school to school. So when I went to a new school, they were just like, well, you're good at maths, do maths. You're good at physics, keep doing physics. And this happened all the way up to university and then on to a master's degree. Um, but some friends 
started to play around with like old analog synths and uh, tape machines. And I'm not very musical, but I was a bit more technical. Like I would, a lot of the old synths were breaking and things like that. So I'd learn how to fix and get in there, you know, tinker about um, chopping up tape and things like that. And when I finished uh, my master's, it was like, well, I could go and work on like fluid flows over Formula One cars or wing design. But I also got offered a job fixing uh, old synthesizers in London. And oh, nice. so I took that job and that didn't last very long, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Um, but then there was um, Pro Tools systems had just come out. And because I understood computers and installation, there was a lot of people transitioning to them from tape or Atari systems. And people wanted helping out. And so I just sort of learned as I went along, which was great. Did you think at that time that video games was going to be a as cinematic or in the direction that it, it was going to be heading over the next, you know, 10, 15 years? Not really. I mean, that was sort of 96, 97. Um, you know, everything was still cartridge-based. The PlayStation 1 had just come out, and there was a, a big thing that it could play Red Book audio, you know, basically a CD audio track along with the game. Um, and the stories that were sort of told in games then were a lot more simplistic and very easy to grasp onto the narrative wasn't so deep um you know classics like zelda or little big adventure uh, those sorts of ones so i don't know the the film thing you mentioned there the cinematic thing i think sort of peaked around as far as i remember about 2002 2004 something like that yeah so i mean what title at the time i guess in 2002 i guess it was burnout 2 you were working on looked like was that the game that was kind of the kind of showed you the light that there was this kind of possibility for games or not yet? Um, not really. I mean, the the racing titles and the burnout titles, It's they're not so much of a narrative-based game or a red thread or an emotion. I mean, in those, in you look at the screen and there's a car and that's your interaction with the car. And I mean, basically, you've just got to drive faster than other people or crash into people or, or not, you know, come off the side of the road. So there's not much of a narrative thread in that. But you were seeing it in other games, like around the time there's Metal Gear Solid and, and those sorts of ones, where they were pulling in film people because we were all asking the question like, okay, we can sort of start to make it sound a bit better, but we, we don't really know how to do that. We can do bleeps and blops, but... You know. Yeah. What was the game title, whether it was something that you worked on or something that you saw that was like complete eye-opening experience? I think it was actually probably when I moved to Sweden. Um, I did seven years of car games and, you know, they were. <laughs> yeah. you can only do so many, you know. It's great fun going to record them, but I, you start running out of ideas. And we worked on a title in the UK called Black, which had a bit of a narrative and it was the first... You first sort of experience, you, you're trying a lot of stuff, but you realize how much you don't know. Um, and then moving to Sweden, the first two titles we worked on was Mirror's Edge and Battlefield Bad Company, which both had very strong single player components. Now, it looks like that was like around 2008. So, I mean, between 2008 and now, a lot, you worked on a lot of projects. That was like your intro into the Battlefield world and Medal of Honor, which Medal of Honor and Battlefield were kind of created recreated that first person it was funny because i remember playing i remember seeing battlefield 1943 and which was i guess around 2009 and that was like oh my gosh this is this is so much more than what we've been offered in the past and, and ultimately like just i remember the sounds and the, and the music also was something that had really take leaps and bounds ahead was that uh, michael giacchino who did that uh, michael giacchino worked on black 
we did the music with him and that's partially because I think he started as a, a composer with the Medal of Honor series as well so he had strong ties inside EA um, and I think around about 2008 the, well 2006 we did Black and we were going to do Black 2 as well and I think he was signed up to do the music for that but he hasn't done the music for any of the Battlefield titles now um, right what do you remember from when you first were starting to work on Black and even Metal or Mirror's Edge? Because that, that's an incredible, very tactile sounding game. Yeah, the, um, what happened there was um, I was doing the pre-production work for Black 2 and we'd finished doing the audio so we knew what we wanted to do. And it was actually very similar to where we are today. It was um, a console generation change. There we were going from the PS2 and the original Xbox, and we were transitioning into the Xbox 360 and PS3. So we'd done a lot of R&D, wanted to do some new cool stuff, but we're waiting for the rest of the other departments to catch up. So I was sort of given the option, it's like, can you find something to do for four months to keep yourself busy? Uh, so I asked around different people inside EA, and one of the options was to come to Sweden and work on Mirror's Edge and do work with the guns and the foley. And I think it was... Partially because it was the guns, uh, because that was, you know, Black 2 was very gun orientated as well. But the whole idea of first person Foley was really interesting and tactile and a lot of feeling. And there was going to have to be a lot of work done in that. So it wasn't just doing the same work again for another title. There was actually a lot of new work that had to be done on it. Yeah. Uh, what were the size of the teams that you had at that time? How, how many people were working on the audio side? I think on Mirror's Edge at any time, there was only two or three people. Um, there was Magnus Volterstad was the audio director, and he stayed with the project all the way throughout. Um, and I helped out, I think, for about six, maybe six to eight months, and then helped out on Battlefield as well, uh, moving around. So they were relatively, around that time, at the start of that generation, we did about maybe three or four people for 18 months. Whereas now the team sizes are about seven or eight for about the same period as well. Yeah. So I mean, transitioning from a lot of doing a lot of car titles now into a lot of this war, yep. war battlefield. I mean, you've probably done close to seven years of that stuff now. Do you feel like creatively you've tapped out, or are there still challenges? It was interesting with Battlefield when you were jumping about. Um, so there was the Bad Company series, which were a bit more jokey. There was 1943, which went back to World War Two. There was Heroes, which was a bit cartoony. Um, then Battlefield 3 and 4, which are sort of more modern day um, feeling. I, I joke because I sort of did seven years Brum Brum, seven years Bang Bang, and now I'm doing Pew Pew on Star Wars. So, <laughs> I mean... It's it's about the nice time to change, um, yeah. but I still help out in the other titles. Yeah. What have you found in terms of th this type of work with your background? You said you you know background focus in math and whatnot and some other topics. Because I, I just know that these these this type of work is a longer production cycle than movies or other types of audio work, and it is an endurance. It seems like it's a big endurance race. Do you find that the difference? skill sets that you have helped keep you involved in other aspects of being an audio director and sound designer for titles? Um, I think differently than film, the way we try and work is uh, what we call cradle to grave. So you'd actually be involved with um, an area, let's say you're working on the guns, all the way from saying, okay, 
what guns are we going to have in the game okay how important are they which guns do i need to record go out record them go out and edit them implement them test them balance them and put them in the game i mean that's a really for a game where you've got maybe 80 to 100 guns that could be somebody's bulk of work for a year um so you can really get your teeth into it so having a myriad of skill sets is really helpful you know the implementation is more maths and physics background with logic and things but then you need the sound design here um to sort of know you know how to build the gun up into layers yeah well over the years because you had exposure to so many different types of gun recordings do you feel like you've you've gotten it you understand it you understand that you know because i saw some great videos that show proximities and different microphone types and obviously like you know these are all the kind of tips and tricks that you have to understand when recording guns because the recording guns is such a different type of craft than just any other types of effects what do you find now is um kind of the takeaway from recording so many guns over the years um i think a lot of it what we try and get a lot more these days is to work out what's the reality that we're going for first of all um you can have like you know you want a hollywood sounding gun that's big and punchy um or you can want more of a a documentary style gun which may be saturated and a bit broken up distortion from a cheaper recording something like you see more on news footage once you know what sort of reality you want to portray you have to go back to your library and see have i got that covered or can i make that out of the material i've already got um but a lot what we try and do these days is try and get um, the recording of the gun in the environment that we want it maybe not necessarily the firing part of it uh, because that's obviously unique for each different model but the tail depending on the type of gun and the type of cal caliber so if we you know recording gunshots in a forest from close up 100 meters 500 meters or an urban situation and i think as sound designers you don't want to keep using the same material again and again and again you know we want to be find something fresh and new that we find you know exciting and you know it's the next new big thing and that's obviously the same for the people who play the games as well yeah, because a lot of the great things that I've learned just from profiling some of the sound titles is that you have a very like specific um, sound that you have, but then it has to live in a different type of environments and scenarios, and, and it seems like the re I don't know it's the audio engine that's that's basically interacting with the space and reverb and proximity. For someone doing sound for video games, do you find that this is an enjoyable experience where there's like different uh, iterations of the same sound and all these things? Or is it is it more of a puzzle for you? I mean, how do you yeah, well, see I, it? I think it's both. It's a challenge. I mean, um, it's better for us to find the perfect recording or the right recording, I should say. I mean, a lot of the times you get recording, it might have a bit of a bird in it or some other background noise or something like that. But if it's got the right feel or emotion and it says, you know, gunshot in forest, we'd rather use that every time. And mm -hmm. for us, actually, the, the granularity of all those situations, the more believable we can make a model, the more we enjoyment we get out of it as well. So it's... Uh, it's good we're pushing in the same direction. Yeah, it's not frustrating uh, at all. Yeah, absolutely. What's the range of uh, the number of sounds that you're pushing into? You know, the final deliverable, the master. Wow, it's so actually. I mean, uh, on disc, it's probably quite hard to say. Um, yeah. I mean, because you can have variants of things like bullet impact on metal, and we might have you know 150 of those. It, it could be somewhere about. 25 50,000 sounds something like that wow 
Um, it could be more. <laughs> yeah. And are and by the time you get to that many different sounds, are all of them actually? Uh, is that a repetition of the same ones being used over time, or is it specific elements also? And how much of it is like walk cycles and ha- and gunfire stuff? That's more, you know. Well, creative. one thing that we've done, we've transitioned to more and more, is not doing the sound design, like absolute sound design, outside of the game. So previously, say 10 years ago, it would be a lot of one-to-one mapping. So we have this event, therefore we make this special sound for it. When this event happens, play this sound. Whereas now we actually do the sound design at runtime. So something like an explosion will be split into, say, 10 different partials, um, a crack, a nose, the boom, the, the distance layer, the debris. And what we look at is um, a load of parameters from the game. So where it occurred, what exploded, um, some abstract parameters as well, like how much damage it's going to do to you. And then we construct all that from all the different elements that we've put in at runtime. So in theory, I mean, you could say that it's infinitely variable. Um, we even get to the stage when we're playing the game back sometimes, like, who made that sound? And none of us will know who did it because we only know the boundaries of where it can make the sound, but we don't know every variant inside it. Oh, nice. And how much does the surround, you know, 51701 come into when you guys are creating now? Where are we at with that playback experience? Well, I suppose it's different uh, in games than because we don't create too many things statically. Um, Say, for example, uh, ambiences can typically be done as a quad. So we're keeping the center free for um, dialogue and the LFE free for effects. So we can construct in a quad and parts of that we can actually have locked to the listener. So the quad will rotate with you as you rotate your head or we can have it locked in the world. So as you rotate, it stays static. But most other sounds are mono or stereo, but positioned correctly in the sound. And then if they've got reverb, they propagate out from those areas as well. Do you, I mean, do you guys, when you are creating the environments, how complex are those, um, not loops, but I mean, the plays, like how long of an ambient background do you have so that it doesn't feel like a loop, it's not re- repetitive? Um, so the first thing we usually do is look at anything that might be repetitive in the loop, so like a, a thunder strike or a certain bird call, and we'll take those out. So we have a very uh, monotonous or flat yeah. uh, global that may be about three minutes long. And then for each area, we'll have a specific one that lays over the top of that. And they can change depending on time of day, uh, weather, if something happens during the play. All the things like uh, wind gusts, insects buzzing around your head, bird calls, distant gunfire, they're all abstracted out and they're played randomly around the player at random timescales. So the idea is you should never hear it loop. And it gives us the ability if, you know, um, it suddenly becomes nighttime or uh, a big explosion happens, you want to change the background ambience, we can do that. Yeah, I was just playing uh, the new Wolfenstein game and awesome. there's this moment when you go back to like the original Wolfenstein, and I swear that music loop is probably like 35 seconds or something or 40 seconds. And that's like so typical of video games then. It was like, you know, early mon- monophonic type of like sounding things. They were so short loops and now it's like, the soundtracks when they do release them for games it's like oh wait there's a full score done by you know someone like brian tyler or michael giacchino and these like amazing composers and it's just a completely different approach do you at this point now do you find that there is similarities between the cinematic world and what you guys are doing especially on some of these crossover titles where they were they are movies like like even harry potter or star wars 
Um, like you mentioned there, just music. It's funny when people uh, write an email to you and go, hi, I make game music. And you're like, what is game music? It doesn't... Yeah. Um, for, for the larger titles now, I'm not talking like about mobile titles that still have, you know, some uh, restrictions on sizes, but for larger console and PC titles, there shouldn't be any difference between real music and game music. Um, the only thing really is if you're looking for any level of interactivity and that can be difficult to achieve say with if you want to do an orchestral recording you've got to record each thing separately into different bars and then keep playing until you transition to oh you beat the bad guy or no you're losing um i suppose that's the only major difference that's still left is the idea that we have interactive scores in some titles what is it that is helpful to if someone who is interested in doing music for video games what other um, interest should, or direction should they have that that's helpful in terms of getting into you know music for video games? Is there a difference because they are so, so similar? The first thing we always say when people ask us that is first of all, do write good music um, and we will find you because we want good music in games. Um, if we've got anything specific, um, you know, where we want interactivity or broken down or stingers, we're usually quite good at um, asking for those in a certain way that even somebody with no games experience go, oh, you just mean like that, and they can just um, help us with that straight away. Uh, benefits are just playing a lot of titles as well and getting an understanding for, you know, you don't just want music to play alongside. You maybe want it to have some level of interactivity and change depending on how the players play in the game. For some of the more recent titles in the past few years, how complex are these scores getting that you've seen in terms of orchestra sizes and just the scope of, of how much energy is put into it? As big as anything. I mean, you yeah. couldn't say this. Um, you mentioned before 1943, we recorded that at Abbey Road uh, in separate sections because we thought we might uh, going to do some mixing or changes afterwards. I think we did the, the strings, the woods, and then the snares separately. But in the end, we just mixed it as you would just a normal stereo uh, straight mix. So there's no difference at all. We work with people who do film, who do games, who do television, who do albums. Right. Um, Even for, so like a tile like 1943, how much of that, of the dynamics, carry over to the final game in terms of, because there is still compression and I guess, you know, you're trying to squeeze a lot of information into these titles. Is it, is it, being compressed much or is are a lot of those dynamics still being maintained throughout and sound effects too i think that's a, a creative choice of how you okay you want to do it the, the the interesting thing is now is that we're doing a lot more of the mixing at runtime as well so we can actually say uh, for somebody with a home cinema setup the dynamic range that we can portray on that may be 60 decibels from the quietest to the loudest sound Whereas television headphones might be down 20 dB to like 40 decibels. And we actually have a mixing system that will mix within that. So the, the 40 decibel, it will have a compressed dynamic range, but that doesn't necessarily mean like um, it's not equivalent of audio compression like you would get with a plug-in. So we keep as much dynamics as possible in all the assets so that if we have to deliver a fully a full range dynamic mix for like home cinema with no perceived compression we can do but also then the engine at runtime can squish that down into a smaller dynamic range for somebody who's playing on tv late at night you know yeah it doesn't want to wake anybody <laughs> up so nothing like a, like a, an uzi or something like waking up your parents yeah having right. the neighbors complain or you know sending the that police was, that, that is honestly my favorite thing like i don't have an amazing system here but like i have a, a you know a, a flat panel tv and turning that thing up while playing video games and just like blasting armory sounds and stuff like it still is 
effective. It's still an effective experience. Would it, I mean, because video games are an active experience as opposed to a passive one, there's um, information encoded in the audio. I mean, that's the main reason for having audio in video games is you're trying to tell the player there's bad guys over there, there's a tank over there. And if we can give you that information and if you can decode that back from the work we've done, you're going to make a better informed decision and you're going to be able to go, okay, I've got the RPG, take the tank out and avoid those. And then you're going to think, I'm awesome at this game. Actually, this yeah. game's really good. The sound's really good. Yeah. I can tell yeah, what's yeah. going on. So we can tell if we've done a good job by people, you know, play better if they listen. Yeah. Do you have a lot of, I mean, they do game testing, but how much involvement, or how, many, how much of your time is spent watching gameplay and, and watching for, inter, you know, the interactivity of it? I think when we're towards the final stage of a game, we usually play um, with the entire studio about one to two hours a day. Yeah. Um, that's mostly bug testing, but you also get some feel for, you know, if you wanted to be able to tell something was happening so far away. And then as an audio team, we obviously get together and we talk on the same level, like a bunch okay. of audio geeks about, you know. Yeah, totally. Uh, there's too much bass in that or you know there's a bit of high end in that but then um obviously everybody we work with when making the game they're avid game players so then we talk to them they're the best source of information you know they can say yeah i heard the bloke walking up the stairs behind me i was able to stop him stabbing me in the back or it was brilliant when that bullet flew past my ear and smashed into the mirror behind me you know and it's people's reactions like that. They may not be able to say it in the technical audio way, but if they can engage and tell me what their experience is, and they're like, yep, that's exactly what you were meant. Oh, okay, I didn't know I did that. Brilliant. So, you know, we have those sorts of moments. How much of a gamer were you and are you now still? Uh, probably, I, was a, I would say I spent a lot more time gaming than before I got the job. Uh, <laughs> it because, takes the edge off. Well, yeah, I think you've got to keep some things back for yourself, sort of thing. I mean, I probably still play about twenty hours of games a week, which is, you know, quite a lot. A, health, a healthy addiction for most people. Oh, that's a, a commute as well, you know. So you get about totally. uh, an hour in and an hour out each day. Oh my gosh! Uh, testing uh, games at work, obviously competition or yeah, other sorts of games. But I mean, just. There's so many ways you can play games now. iPhone, iPad, uh, PS4. You can play a, a $60 title or a $6 title. And they all offer so many different genres and types of games. It's fantastic. Yeah. When I talk with sound mixers for films, I always ask them, what format should I experience You know, the mix? Where does it sound best? Some might be an immersive format. Some might just be in a traditional you know, 3D or an IMAX or these premiere sizes for you. What is your kind of go-to, or, or what do you suggest? I mean, is it he is it a mixture of headphones experiences still a lot of fun, or a surround, or a stereo? It's it's hard to say really because we have to make sure that the mix works for everybody in every situation. So my favorite is just at home. I've got my uh, old Dynaudio BM6As, which obviously oh, okay. that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. So that's plenty. I don't have five one at home. I'm just you know, nice big loud stereo is is fine for me. Um, um, but at work we listen to it on five one seven one all the time as well to test all those okay. environments. So. It's yeah, I, I suppose for people, whichever one they find the most enjoyable. Um, you know, headphones is quite a, an insular experience. You're sort of closed off and you're quite focused. I could never play a horror game with headphones. I think I'd just die or I have a heart attack or something. That, that's uh, like my favorite mem mem memories of playing video games with friends. Is like when the, with their headphones on and they're in their room or something and they're just yelling and you're like, what is going on? Like, oh, he's playing, you know, yeah. Battlefield. Yeah. 
and just, they're just like totally it's totally in their own world just yeah. shouting at people <laughs> shouting at people yeah i mean there's so many like web videos of people you know playing games and just like yelling and cursing at the screen and i think it's big in part too obviously the sound and the visceral visceral reactions that you have to you know this type of stuff what, what do you find now where are we now 2014 where is it at creatively technically all of it well we're at um a transition stage so um we're moving in between playstation 3 playstation 4 xbox 360 xbox one and it's always a an interesting time because you get a lot of people saying oh all the problems that we used to have they don't exist anymore you know we've got all this more memory we can stream this much you know it's the the thing is is when we do these jumps it's not just to upscale the solution we had before um that doesn't always seem to work the best what i always find is good is we take on new people um as we go along and the thing is is to give them the problem and see how they would do it with fresh ears fresh eyes because we we can end up in the the old man syndrome you know i've been doing it for 15 years and we will do it like this because we've done it like this for 15 years that's not the right answer you know that's not going to push you forward that's just going to maintain and get a little bit better so it's you can know what you know from the previous um, generation, and that's good experience. But, you know, if you can and you've got the time, just start on a fresh sheet of paper with fresh eyes and ears on the problem and see what you come up with. You were kind of giving a um, description of the team, the, or the characteristics of the people on your team, being that they are game players. Obviously, they're good sound recordists or designers. But ultimately, how, what does it come down to? Because you guys are working together so closely over time, I'm sure that there's a little bit of people skills in there too. Yeah, uh, definitely. When we uh, look to employ people, I mean, we, we say, you know, we need a sound designer. We'll get 300 applicants, 400 applicants. We can whittle that down to about 30 people quite quickly that are more than capable of doing the job. On paper, from the resume, yeah, you know, we after two months training, they'll be as good as anybody else in the department. The thing we look at then is how do they fit in the team? You know, what are they going to bring? Um, and, you know, how are they going to grow inside the team? And not, you know, we don't bring them in to do this job today. We also look at like, okay, where they're going to be in two years, four years, five years. What, what do they want to do as well? And, you know, sometimes people might have five years experience and a ton of skills, but somebody might have, you know, a year's experience, but they just feel a better fit and we're more likely to go with that person. Mm. Um, I see a lot of, you know, audio programs in schools and colleges and technical programs offering video game sound. Do you feel like what is kind of the, or how would you describe kind of like this is a good foundation of of where you should start in terms of obviously you should play games to understand yep. how sound works, but beyond that, what are some additional helpful tips for people that are interested in this type of work? Well, the thing is, I mean, there's so many what you'd call low or no budget titles out there. Um, you can look on Kickstarter, you know, there'll be some people who are making a game based on da 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 da. You could probably approach them and say, look, you know, I fancy trying to do the audio for your title. Um, I know you've not got much money, but hey, you know, what about a profit share or something along those lines? Um, it used to be about five years ago, a lot of people who were taking in an interview stage had worked on mods. So, you know, somebody taken a title, changed it into a different scenario, and then redone all the sounds for it. So, Education, yes. Knowing what you're doing, it's pretty useful. Um, a lot of people I know are self-taught as well. So, I mean, you can learn from a, a college or a university, but make sure you're learning at 
you know, outside of that, reading different web pages or forums. But actually getting some credits is is essential, you know. Having a blog showing how you recorded something, stuck it through a load of plugins, and then threw it into a game and it sounded awesome is great. It's not just enough to be, I'm a sound guy and I know how to do this. Let, let me do my work because it's just like the bar is so much higher now. Oh, completely. Like, I, there's, yeah. For that person that came in, there's another 40, exactly the same. So how do you stand out from that? Um, yeah. I think in, sorry, I think in Sweden, there's roughly, I'm not exactly sure on this, but I think they train about twice as many people to do game audio each year as there are game audio jobs in Sweden. So we'd have to kill everybody every six months to give them a job. You know, it's uh, probably strange. That's incredible. Yeah. What do you find that's unique about being in Sweden, uh, being where you guys are and, and your guys' perspective on how you handle sound that's different from the rest of the world? Um, I think they're very, very humble, which is okay. really, really refreshing. You know, there's no, uh, it's very rare to find like an alpha male or somebody telling you it should be done like this because I say so. Um, very mutually respectful, also slightly isolated, which is interesting as well, because we might watch, you know, um, a making of how they did the sound for this. And to us, it's a completely different world. You know, it's like, oh, okay. So it's strange. So it never feels like we're playing catch up or that we have to get to a certain level it, it because it's quite alien as well. So it's quite interesting, unique. Yeah. yeah. Um, for you, What's most satisfying? Obviously, a game title comes out. It's critically acclaimed. People love it. Do you go online and play with people? Do you have that interactivity? What, what, what for you is the, you know, the icing on the cake, I suppose? Uh, after we finished Battlefield 3, I was working on the um, expansions for that that all came out. And when you work on the expansion, you're always wanting to tweak the game to get the most out of the information that you've put in there or to tune it so more and more people get, you know, appreciate it. And I think my wife's also a sound designer at Dice. So oh, it was wow. great. We were tag teaming. We, I think we put like six, 700 hours into playing oh it online. You know, it's yeah. like uh, a, a lot of it at work and then some of it at home as well. But we were running around with a tag on it that says a Dice tag. So people can stab you and then take your tag. So no way. It's it, sometimes you just it ends up like a zombie hunt. You know, you're like, oh, here they come. So you sort of backed into a corner with a, shot, <laughs> a shotgun and claymores, and you know, you end up top of the scoreboard because you got a hundred kills. You know, but it's a completely different game. Oh my it's, gosh, it's quite strange. So I mean, it, it's just fun, you know, when people. I mean, hearing good feedback is always good. You know, it, it's nice people say nice things. But when people listen and they say, you know, this gun's too loud or I can't really tell when this happens, really useful feedback you can act on is, is super important. It always helps you make it better. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I imagine you guys also work with a lot of other outside recorders because I feel like every recorder that I do talk with, they're always mentioning, oh, a video game title is a majority of, it seems like there is a lot of work for external recorders that you guys are using as great resources to help supply your libraries. What's the um, the range and breadth of not specific individuals? Uh, what is it that you're usually asking for, or going for when you when you need these additional recordings? I think um, it's anything usually that's expensive. It's probably the easiest way of saying it. You know, um, wind in trees, not that expensive. Um, you know, gun recordings, explosions, specific vehicles, uh, tanks, especially military vehicles or sports cars. So, I mean, if even if I don't need it, if I know people in Sweden who say, you know, uh, what are you doing this weekend? We're going to record this expensive sports car. 
well, I don't need it, but I know it, it, it's worthwhile my time going to record it. Um, it. It's those sorts of things. And there's also people who've got unique talents as well who are um, patients. You know, if, you, if somebody's going to sell you, you know, a wind collection where they've spent, you know, months recording winter winds, summer winds, spring winds, grass winds. I, I haven't really got the time for that. And usually yeah, sure. it's the wrong time of year. When I want winter yeah. winds, it's summer. You know, so it's like, ah. Oh, how interesting. What's the the business aspect of budgeting for a game title like this? Is it you have a set budget and you have to make it work? Or is it kind of adaptive to Earth as the production cycles expand or condense? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy once... Um, once a studio trusts you or a group of people trust you, um, it's quite easy, as long as you're not ridiculously over the top with your budget. So if I go back to the burnout titles, the first burnout title, I had no budget. I had to basically record cars in neutral, you know, just pulled outside people's garages or at dealerships, you know. Yeah. So the next title, like, well, how do we do that a bit better? Well, we spend some money. Okay. Yeah. By the the third or fourth one, you know, we were jacking cars up and putting them on these uh, silent rolling roads, and you know, recording eight channels at the same time. So by by proving at each step and saying, well, we can make it better if we do this, if we do this, if we do this, and you do what's called pre-production at the start of a project. So it's like, well, okay, let's go and record one gun, and then we'll put that in the game. Oh, can you hear how much better that is? Yes. Okay, now can we have a million dollars now? Uh, $40,000 to go and record, you know, 80 guns or something like that. So it's it's by proving what the, the monetary, what the spend will get you in terms of quality. Yeah, what are some of the unique trips that you guys have done? Oh, I think there's, uh, there's an old video online, I think, from uh, when all of EA got together to do that really big gun shoot. And that was great because that was teams from Army of Two, Medal of Honor, from, um, and it was as much sharing information with other people as well as just you know shooting every gun and we ended up in this fake iraqi village uh, medina wasa in the middle of fort Irwin. so you know just like sh- shooting shotguns in rooms and then recording the you know the sound and the reverberation out of that um yeah tank recordings uh, big heavy artillery recordings they're always good fun um i've just come back well almost just come back from two weeks recording in iceland as well which was beautiful but that wasn't game specific. That was um, there's these courses called the Wild Eye courses where you just go and listen a lot and then record, which is completely different from day to day work. So. Oh, incredible! So I guess moving forward now into this kind of new realm of uh, game sound for you, and going into the Star Wars franchise, what does that do to you creatively in terms of just completely shift changing? I think it's, first of all, it's really refreshing uh, to work on a, a new IP. The The thing a lot of people asked initially was, well, how does it feel that somebody's already sort of set what it should sound like? Because um, I think people look at an audio director as some sort of conductor or somebody who sets exactly what it's going to sound like and it's going to be their, their awesome vision, you know, their their... I don't know, something they're going to have on their tombstone. And it, it's not really like that, how we work. So it... It's actually refreshing that somebody's already solved parts of the problem and all we have to do is sort of expand out from it. So it's already grounded in a, in a, in a fixed world. And I think, you know, it's, it's a dream of any sound designer, I think, to work with the Star Wars titles because obviously Ben Burt's early work and then how it's progressed and all the advances it's made. So 
dream gig <laughs> yeah dream gig if it is possible what do you um find for a title like that how much are you supplied sounds at all is there kind of this is how it has to sound or you have to go back and recreate some of those iconic sounds I think the easiest way, I mean, can't talk too much specifically about that project, but um, whenever we work with something, let's say uh, a certain vehicle or something like that, and say in a film, if there's a tank and it's on the screen and it drives past and that's all you see it, we have to expand from that single point uh, and build what does it sound like from the interior? What does it sound like from 50 meters away, 100 meters away, 500 meters away? So you've got the starting point but then um, you'd have to go back and go, okay, what did they actually use to make that sound? Okay, have I got any more of those? Can I record any more of it? I mean, an interesting thing I've been doing at the moment is with the old recordings is um, using tools like Isotope RX and WNS, and you can really start spectrally cutting through things and actually extracting individual layers out and then recreating those and then combining it all back together to make a new, bigger, shinier version of an old something old. Fantastic. And I, I, just talking with some other recordists, you know, there's a with bit rates and qu the quality of sounds that are captured at a certain point, the older stuff isn't usable. But it sounds like in this case, you can go back and kind of grab elements of completely. Um, I mean, even with the old commercial libraries that are on quarter inch tape or vinyl, um, when we were starting out, you didn't discard them. Uh, the best way of working with something like that is if you found an old sound that you liked, you tried to denoise it, but never get any of the artifacts that used to be right. in the early denoises, but then always layer a new sound over the top of it. So you had that uh, feeling of quality or fidelity. Um, you might have the right emotional characteristic or story in the old sound, but you had to add that quality layer back over the top of it. So, I mean, it's not some things it just works with and others it takes a lot of time going backwards and forwards between different programs, adding things. Um, yeah. It's really rewarding though. It's actually quite good fun as well. So. <laughs> nice. It's so cool. So I guess for you, now that you've put in a, a, a fair amount of time, you know, dedicated to specific or, or to video game audio, what is it that's going to keep you creatively going besides that obviously you're changing like you know going from different ips different game titles and worlds that you're going at yeah um the people always the people yeah. that you work with um it, it doesn't matter you know how good you are it's the people you work with and how they work together as a team whether that's you know your audio team that you work with you know uh, hour by hour the wider game team um when you work with external people i mean they're the people that are going to challenge you and keep you alive and you know test you and help you get even higher so definitely team people yeah so cool well thanks ben for taking the time this has been a lot of fun yeah. i'm trying to help peel back a few of those layers to show people that's not as simple as just gun sounds tank sounds, airplane sounds, because... It, it, it's where it starts, but uh, yeah, there is, there is quite a lot more behind it as well. Um, and it, it's if you want to do that as well, you know, some people just want to do some parts of the job, but when you find the people who want to do the whole thing and really get in there and get the hands dirty with every part of it, that's when something special or magical happens, yeah. It's beautiful. Cool. Thank you, Ben, for the All time. Right. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Take care.